If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 8, and uh, this morning we should conclude our study in this uh, incredible book of this guy who wasn't a prophet, wasn't a priest, he was just a shepherd and uh, tender of sycamore figs. And uh, one day he just gets that call. The Lord says, I want you to go and speak to the house of Israel, to go to Bethel, to this place where idolatry had run rampant. And the Lord says, I want you to tell them that judgment is coming. You know, it's, it's an incredible thing that when you think about that call and the willingness of Amos to say, yes, Lord, I'll go. You know, we've been talking a lot recently and the Lord has been teaching many of us if not all of us, about walking by faith. You know, walking by faith is not waking up and kind of figuring out what you're going to go and do and then committing it to the Lord. It's waking up and saying, Lord, it's all for you, all about you. What do we do? And the Lord has really been teaching me this lesson over the last few months. Every day is an exciting adventure, just not knowing what's going to happen. You know, and it doesn't matter if you have a regular routine. It can still be that free. That you can say, Lord, you know, I'm on assignment for you today. And you may have a fixed place of work. You may have, as I say, a regular routine you go through, but treat every day as an assignment from God as to what He's going to give you and lead you through and into how you can be a blessing to others. So let's pray and just commit this time to the Lord. Shall we? Father, we just ask for your blessing now as we break the bread of your word. Lord, fill us, we pray. And Lord, satisfy, Lord, the hunger in our hearts. Um, Lord, with that knowledge that is you who is the bread of life. You are the living water. Lord, you can satisfy and you alone. Um, So Lord, we just commit this time to you. Speak to us, edify us, encourage us, and bless us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have been going through, we've obviously looked in the opening chapters, this uh, uh, judgment that's pronounced upon these six neighboring nations of Israel, and then finally on Judah, the southern kingdom, and then on Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, and then in chapters 3 through 6, really God just lays out the guilt and the punishment. But why, why God was going to bring judgment in the first place? That Israel had walked away. They'd rejected the prophets that had come. They had become just like the nations around them. And then we saw, picking up from chapter 7, these visions that Amos has. There's five visions in total uh, that Amos has. And we've seen three of them already. And then uh, Amos gets interrupted um, by this false priest, um, Azariah. You, you remember that uh, Jeroboam I, when the kingdom was divided after King Solomon, we have Rehoboam, Solomon's son, becomes king over the southern kingdom of Judah. And then we have uh, Jeroboam, this other individual, who takes the throne of the northern kingdom, Israel. But he leads Israel into idolatry. And he says, you know, if you fancy being a priest, then just come and have a go at it. You know, and of course, just, just everything that the law said, uh, pretty much he went against. Uh, and led the whole nation into iniquity. He put these two golden calves, one in Bethel, which is like the southern part of the northern kingdom, and the other one up in Dan, which is then right at the top of Israel. And just encourage people to worship these things. Oh, but that can be your God. It doesn't really matter, does it? You know, it's so similar to many of the teachings that come through the church today. You know, it doesn't really matter what you call God. It does matter. And God makes it very, very clear in his word. So, uh, and then we'll see, as we conclude in a while, that uh, although all these judgments are pronounced on Israel, God still 
is true to his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that Abraham's descendants will not be destroyed. They will not be wiped out. God has a plan for them, a future and a hope. An expected end, actually, is the, the wording. Um, yeah, it's, it's a defined. It's not just some kind of, if you're all not sure what's going to happen, but it will be good. It's an expected end. And that's what God has for Israel. He's not gone back on the promises he made. And as we read in Jeremiah, you know, God even says that as we have the sun and the moon, you know, if they could be done away with, then God will do away with Israel. But that's not going to happen. And of course, Paul in Romans 9, 10, 11 makes it very clear that God has a plan and a future for the nation of Israel. They are blinded for the time being whilst the Gentiles are being brought in. But once the fullness of the Gentiles are in, then Israel's eyes will be opened again. And that's where this book will kind of end. Let me just read you this quote. Amos, a shepherd and a tender of sycamore trees, was happily going about his business one day when the call of God came upon him. Now, at a moment like that, you can either choose to run, Jonah style, and that didn't end well. Or you can try and ignore the call. And that's what many do, but then they lose out on an opportunity to serve God, and that moment will be lost forever. Or they can choose, like Amos, to obey. Oswald Chambers said this. He said, the spiritual saint never believes circumstances to be haphazard or thinks of his life as secular and sacred. It's two separate things. He sees everything he is dumped down in as the means of securing the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is a reckless abandonment about him. The Holy Spirit is determined that we shall realize Jesus Christ in every domain of life. And he will bring us back to the same point again and again until we do. The point is simply that the Lord will take us into situations to bring us to that place of walking by faith. That's what we are to do. You know, and as I say, you know, walking by faith is not that we calculate everything and then ask God to bless it. Walking by faith is that we simply say to God, Lord, what do you want? How do you want? I just said, I'm going to follow you. And it's learning to listen to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. In those crazy moments when the Holy Spirit just puts in your, your heart that desire to speak to someone. And you think, oh, that, 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 that's, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. I know many of us here have been in situations that the Lord has just put on our heart to have a conversation with somebody and you think it's the, the, the most ridiculous thing to do. I remember once in a situation and I really felt the Lord say to me, to say to this individual that he was bound up with tradition. And I thought to myself, I can't say that, that's rude. And I thought he might be really offended. And in fairness, this was a, a, a chap who was, it was an Anglican church and he was wearing a, you know, a very old kind of jumper and he just looked kind of, old and I thought he's going to think that it's because of the way he looks that I'm saying this to him but I really felt the call of the Holy Spirit and I just obediently said I just feel the Lord says that you're bound up with tradition and his eyes just opened then he said you know he said my wife and I have been praying he said we really feel we're trapped and we're just not sure what to do and we had a really long chat about the Lord about his word about the way that the church that he was currently in was undermining scripture you know, that was one of those moments. It just seemed illogical to make that comment from a, from a human perspective. But that's what walking by faith is about. It's learning to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and to step out in faith and do things that just seem ridiculous. Sometimes to us, this says, you know, there's a reckless abandonment. And that's what it is. It's not stupidity. It's learning to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and to go where he leads us. It's another quote here. We can all see God in exceptional things, but it requires the culture 
of spiritual discipline to see God in every detail. Again, never allow that the haphazard is anything less than God's appointed order and be ready to discover the divine designs anywhere. And I say that because Amos did exactly that. He listened to the promptings of the Lord. And he stepped out in faith in a ridiculous situation to go and to speak to people that didn't want to hear, to give them a message they didn't want to listen to. And yet God called him to do it. You know, we see so often with the prophets, it wasn't about success or results or anything else. It was about obedience. And we have this record. Let's jump in uh, just to chapter um, 8. Um, just, this is an introduction to chapter 8 because we saw last time this uh, introdu- interruption by Amaziah. I'm just going to read this quote for you uh, by uh, James Kaufman. He says, Amos having effectively disposed of the interruption by Amaziah. So Amos was partway through giving these visions. He's done three. And then Amaziah steps in and basically says, don't speak to us. We don't want to hear what you've got to say. In fact, go back to, his, go back to Judah. We don't want to hear you speak here. And he kind of puts him in his place. So now he carries on. And he says, proceeded to live, deliver his sermon. The first four visions actually occur in pairs. The first two being disasters averted through prayer. And that's what we looked at last time. The way Amos pleads with God to have mercy on the nation. And God does. But the next two announcing the summary and forthcoming end of Israel. The first of these, the third which is what we're going to see. Uh, which is what we have already seen. Having already been delivered. And this fourth one, which now begins chapter 8. Uh, is not a recapitulation of the third, uh, nor the introduction of any any startling new element. Amos's denunciation continued as if nothing had occurred. Notwithstanding the interference of Amaziah, the prophet finishes the recital of his visions. So we've had three of the visions already given. Again, the first two were averted as Amos pleads and intercedes on behalf of the nation. And then God says, but enough, I am going to bring judgment And that's when Amaziah steps in, and now, as if that hadn't happened, Amos just carries on regardless. And says this, Thus has the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now, you've got to get the kind of picture here, that the summer fruit was typically at the end of the season. So at the end of the summer, that's when the fruit is going to be gathered in off the trees, that's when it's ripe, that's when it's ready to be eaten. You know, And and it's kind of saying, it's done, it's over. Albert Barnes made the comment, he said, the Lord gives ample warning and many opportunities to repent, but eventually, because he's not mocked, his just judgment will come. The fruits was the latest harvest in Palestine or in Israel. Uh, when it was gathered, the circle of husbandry was come to its close. So all that they'd done through the years come to an end, and now God is saying, right, it's an end. No more waiting, judgment is coming. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. No more relenting from the judgment. Now it's time for judgment to come. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, says the Lord. There shall be many dead bodies in every place, and they shall cast them forth with silence. Can you imagine the people at Bethel in the kind of the open area, typically in the, the gates of the city? The, 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 in those times, the gates was where the people would meet. The town council typically would meet and talk about things. And Amos is there shouting these things out to them and saying, you know, the songs of the temple, the songs that they, were used to, they, were, they would sing. There should be howlings in that day. And there's going to be many dead. There's a lot of people going to die. This is not a, a popular message. This is not what they wanted to hear. And as Amaziah has already said, go back home. We don't want to hear this message. 
Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy. See, what Amos is now doing is just reminding them of their sin. He says, listen to this. You know, those of you who are kind of wealthy and are comfortable, you swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail. You know, there's a lot in the Torah, in the first five books in the law, about justice and the way we should treat each other. You know, it's kind of summed up with that love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law is what James refers to it as. And yet they were doing things here to cause even the poor of the land to stumble. Verse 5 saying, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel grain and falsifying the balances by deceit? So two things here. Firstly, they can't wait for the the Sabbath to be over, so they can trade again. And the, the, the celebrations they would have, you know, the new moons and the, when they would have um, their feast days and things, they go, I can't wait for it to be over because I just want to get back to making money and, and selling. You know, it's, it's a little bit like it was in this country before the, the Sunday trading laws really came in. You know, Sunday was a day typically where people would just rest. You know, that, that's what this country knew. And then there was people that wanted to trade, wanted to sell. You know, there wasn't enough time in six days to go and do all our shopping, so we had to have another day. And it's kind of like the same idea. And gradually, God gets pushed further and further out of the, the kind of conscious mind of the society. And they just want to get these feasts out of the way so they can get back to making money and, and being deceitful. Because notice they're saying, like making the ether small. Now, these were units of measurement. So typically, imagine like scales, but they'd have like unbalanced weights. They'd have weights that weren't quite what they were supposed to be so that they could make more profit. Making the shekel grain and falsifying the balances by deceit. They're being very, un, uh, very uh, dishonest and unethical. Verse 6 says that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. Yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. Verse 7 carries on. The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. It's, it's really interesting. You know, we talk a lot in, in kind of Christian circles about works and the fact that we are saved by grace. And that, you know, works don't come into it. Now, of course, James makes it clear that actually works are important. That we've been saved for good works. You know, the Lord would have us do good works, but they don't contribute to our salvation. But for those who are not saved, works are really important. Because at the judgment seat, uh, the great white throne judgment seat, right at the end, after the millennium, everybody who is judged will be judged according to their works. God is going to weigh everything they've done, the good, the bad, and everything else, and they'll be judged according to their works. And God says, I will not forget any of their works. In Ecclesiastes, it says, God requires an account of that which is past. It's a really scary thought. You know, there are many that think, that erroneously, of course, that that one day they're going to get to meet the, the big man in the sky and whatever terms they tend to use. And that they're going to argue with God and have this conversation and say, well, but I've done all these good things. doesn't matter. doesn't matter how many good things you've done. When people stand before God, they'll be judged according to the standard that God has set in his word, in the law. Verse 8, Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwells therein? And it shall rise up holy as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. Now, reference, of course, to the crossing of the Red Sea, the way that the waters came back on the Egyptians. 
and that they were all drowned. All the, the, the wicked Egyptians that were chasing God's people, they were drowned as those floodwaters came back over them. And Amos saying, it's just going to be like that. There'll be no escape for them. Verse 9 goes, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Interesting statement. Is it a prophecy? Seems to be a prophecy. You know, God seems to prophesy that the sun is going to go down at noon and darken the earth in the clear day. So at midday, it's going to get dark. Now, some commentators suggest it could be just a figure of speech, and that's a possibility it is, but the more you study Scripture, the more you start to see that these things are literal, that they aren't just some allegory pointing to something else. They are what they, they intend to be. You know, and it might simply be that because of the desolation and the devastation of their enemies that was going to come, it would be like saying, oh, the sun really set on me yesterday. You know, that kind of, you know, it's the gloom and the sorrow was just overwhelming them. However, Amos, I believe, was probably actually predicting eclipses that took place in Israel within 20 years of this. And this is why I think this is the case. Now, Archbishop Usher records three eclipses that took place in the succeeding years. Each of them occurred on feast days. The first was on the Feast of Pentecost, the second on the Feast of Trumpets the following year, and then the year after that, the third, uh, which occurred again on the Feast of Pentecost. Interesting. Again, it's just thus making the sun to go down at noon and darkening the earth on a clear day. It turned their feasts into mourning. These days that should have been celebrations became anything other than. But this is interesting because this is carrying on the same theme. Verse 10 says, And I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head. And I will make it as the morning of an only son and the end thereof as a bitter day. Now, why is that so interesting? Well, because of the wording it gives us. And it says that there's going to be this effectively darkness that's going to come upon the land at midday. And it's going to be a day of mourning, a day of lamentation, sackcloth and all these things. And the morning, and as of, as the morning of an only son. I think this is significant. Chuck Smith makes this comment. He says, however, we do read of one day, which was a feast day, the feast of Passover in which it turned dark at noon on a clear day. It could not have been an eclipse because Passover takes place at full moon and it's impossible to have an eclipse on a full moon. That was the day that Jesus was crucified. You remember how it declares that darkness covered the land from the ninth hour onward. The sixth hour, there was darkness over the land. Could this be a prophecy of the darkness of that of the, that time of the crucifixion of Christ? The sun to go down at noon and darken the earth on a clear day and to turn the feast into mourning, the songs into lamentations, to bring up the sackcloth and all uh, and all the loins, uh, baldness, which was a shaving of the head in grief over the dead. It's just interesting, isn't it, that, that Amos seems to be, although he's talking of his own time and what was about to happen then, there seems to be this idea that he's looking forward to the crucifixion, which indeed was as he describes. Verse 11 carries on. Behold, the days come saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now that's the key. Amos isn't saying that there's going to be a famine 
of hearing, of, of the word of the Lord being given, but it's of hearing the word of the Lord. You know, there were periods in the Old Testament where they went a while without God speaking. Abraham, in his own life, kind of went through stages where he didn't hear the Lord for a while, and then suddenly he hears the Lord and he builds an altar and, and kind of so on. And in the Old Testament, there's periods where God didn't speak. But the problem here is not that God wasn't speaking, it was that they weren't hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. Now, why didn't they find it? We'll come to that in a second. I just want to read another quote by Chuck Smith. He said this, I believe that we are living in those days where there is a famine of the word of God. The paradox is that there is probably never more Bibles in print in any time in the history of the world than there is now, and more versions and in more languages. The famine for the word of God is that people would no longer be hearing the word of God. It isn't that God isn't any longer speaking. It doesn't mean that the word of God isn't there. It means that people are no longer hearing the word of God. Now, why didn't they find it? It says that they they went to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. Now, didn't Jesus say that if you seek, you'll find? Well, I think we've already been given the reason to this. And it was simply that they didn't want to hear. Just as Amaziah had already said. They didn't want to hear these words. It wasn't that the word wasn't there, that they blocked their ears. They got so accustomed to the world around them, to their idolatry. They didn't want to hear things of God. It made them feel uncomfortable. You know, I've known many Christians over the years who are quite happy going to church every week. You know, and they, they seem to have some sort of relationship with God, and they pray, and but you start to talk to them about the Bible, and they get very uncomfortable. They don't like it. Oh no, you know, and particularly if you start talking about prophecy, it's like, oh no, no, please, please don't, you know, I don't like that. Why not? It's God's word. You know, everything in God's word is profitable for us, that we may be thoroughly furnished. I love that expression, it's a King James expression, 2 Timothy 3 16. You know, the word of God is uh, profitable uh, for all things. He says, uh, the, the, the New King James says that we may be thoroughly equipped, uh, and that's okay. It's only furnished. You know, if you think about a house that's furnished, you know, if you move into a flat that's furnished, it's got everything that it, it needs to have. Well, that's the way the Lord wants our life, and that's what the Word of God does for us. It gives us everything we need. You know, and we are at a time where people, as Paul says, they are heaping up teachers to themselves to say whatever they want teachers to say. You know, in many churches, all you get each week is little platitudes, little homilies, things that make you feel fuzzy and warm inside, but don't really touch the soul, don't really cause us to grow in grace. You know, seven times in the book of Revelation, Jesus said to the letters to the churches, he that has ears, let him hear. You know, in the parables as well, Jesus said the same thing. You know, there's clearly a distinction between listening to something and hearing something and understanding. I mean, ladies, you'll you'll know this because you'll speak sometimes and you'll look at your husband and your husband will give you that nod and you know that he didn't hear. I, I know this to be the case. Many, many times. And, and, you know, this is why, you know, in the Bible, often when things are said to men, they're twice. It's like Abraham, Abraham, or Moses, Moses. It's because men need to be told things twice. We're not good if we're just told things once because we're over there somewhere. And Joy will say something to me and I'll go, yep. And she'll say, what did I just say? And I go, oh, no, I hate that question. (laughs) Uh, I'll repeat it back and it's like, sometimes I get bits of it right, but often miss the details. There's a big difference between hearing and really understanding something 
and just listening to the noise of the sound. And the problem is there are many that, that listen to, to the noise, they hear the word in terms of it goes into their ears, but it doesn't hit their hearts. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it says, God's hand is not short that he cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your sins have separated between you and God. See, that's the, the problem. There's a barrier that we put up ourselves. Psalm 66, verse 18 says something similar. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And if we have that barrier that is put up in our lives, then we become dull to the sound of God speaking to us. And sadly, so many people kind of would prefer to be in that place. They find it more comfortable than having God speak to them and challenge them about things in their lives, their hearts, their minds. But you know, what we'll see is that if God's word does not satisfy you, then you can be sure that nothing else will. You see, they were, they were searching. They were going all over the land, as it were, to try and find, to hear the word of the Lord. But they didn't really want to hear what God had to say to them. And then we read verse 13, it carries on. In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus said that if you drink of that water, the water of the well, as he speaks in John 4 to the woman, that you'll thirst again. But if you drink of him, the living water, you shall never thirst. And that woman cries out, she says, give me of that water. Jesus says, I am that living water. It goes on, verse 14, it says, They that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again. Okay, so just talk about three pagan deities. Let me just give you that, if I can, in the Living Bible, just give me a second, because I quite like the paraphrase. Verse 14. So I'm just going to read 13 and 14. Beautiful girls and fine men alike will grow faint and weary, thirsting for the word of God. And those who worship the idols of Samaria and Dan and Beersheba shall fall and never rise again. That's the, the idea that's being conveyed there. You know, and of course, Dan of the Northern, we've already said that's where the golden, one of the golden calves was. They had, again, other pagan deities and so on that they worshipped down in Beersheba. You know, and up in Samaria, which was the capital of the Northern Kingdom, they had their, their idols. And God is simply saying, you know, those who worship those things, they're going to fall and they're not going to rise again. Okay, so into the last chapter. Verse 1, I saw the Lord... Standing upon the altar. Okay, so this is now the fifth vision. And we'll see echoes of Psalm 139 in this. You'll see in a second. But this isn't the altar that the pagans were worshipping at. This is kind of in contrast to the last verse. The last verse was looking at the pagan idolatry. And now the focus shifts, as it were, to the temple in Jerusalem. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. And he said, smite the lintel of the door that the posts may shake and cut them in the head, all of them. Now, this is, is not the head of the people. This is, this is the posts. It's breaking them down. It's talking about the roof coming in, as it were. You can imagine how the people felt as they're hearing Amos say this, because I mean, he's been talking about judgment coming and all these things. Now he starts to speak about the temple, which even though they were in the north of the kingdom, they still respected and reverenced the temple. It was a wonderful building for a start. 
And it was, of course, the place where Solomon had worshipped and God's Shekinah glory had been seen and these incredible things had taken place. There was a, an awe about the place. And Amos is saying it's going to be destroyed. It's a little bit like Jesus when he comes and he says that, you know, destroy the temple, you know, and in three days I'll build it again. And, of course, the, the Jews are indignant with what he says. And, and Jesus says that, you know, not a stone will be left standing. Of course, Jesus spoke of his own body, but he also spoke of the real temple being destroyed, which it was in AD 70. And there was this kind of, kind of incredulous response from the, the people then and in Jesus' day. But, but it's the temple. This is where God has chosen to put his name. Yeah, the name says, yeah. But you've rejected that name. He says, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away. And he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence shall my hand take them. And though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. Again, Psalm 139 reminds us that you know you can go to heaven, you can make your bed in the depths of hell, and there God's presence can be felt. There God can find you. Just to make it a, a very clear distinction, the Bible speaks of hell, uh, and it speaks of two different places, and it uses the same terms, which is why sometimes it can be a little confusing. But there is the ultimate hell, the lake of fire, the eternal hell, God's presence will not be there, and that is why it's hell. I think I've shared this a number of times before. When we were younger, um, we were up in uh, Kent with uh, Matt and Abby, and um, we were uh, at a kind of a, a hop farm there, and they've got lots of uh, um, like a petting zoo, so they've got rabbits and all sorts of things. And uh, Marla had been delayed looking at some of the rabbits, and we'd all kind of wandered off. And we were just walking around the other side of one of these kind of like you know, little fairground ride things. And I, I, I was keeping an eye on Marla, but she didn't know where we were. I don't know whether you remember this or not. Um, but, but there was this moment where she looked up and she, she couldn't see us. And there was that fear that just struck her face that she'd lost mummy and daddy. I mean, she's a bit similar to that today, to be honest, when we go shopping. But, but you know what it's like? You know, you, you, you've seen that probably with children where they, they kind of, in the shop, and they kind of suddenly forget where their mum and dad are, and they look around in panic. Okay, there's, there's a sense of loss and a fear in that. That's, it's, it's not a good analogy, but it's, it's an analogy of that emptiness that people will feel when they are finally separated from the presence of God. You know, People talk about the, um, the hellfire and the brimstone and all that. And yes, hell will be a place of torment and burning and all those things, exactly as the Bible says. But the real horror is that you'll be separated from the presence of God, and none of us can imagine what that's like. Only one person has ever experienced that. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, that's the only time in Jesus' entire ministry that he refers to God not as Father, but as my God. Because that relationship had been severed on account of our sin. Jesus took our sin upon himself. And on account of that sin, the Father has to turn away. And people laugh and joke and they say, oh, well, I don't mind going to hell, all my friends will be in hell. No, it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be a place of, of partying and revelry and all those kind of things. It will be a place of torment. And the real torment will be because you are not in God's presence. However, for now, there is a place that the Bible also speaks of as hell, or Hades, Sheol, the pit. It's a holding place where when people die, 
They go to these places. They don't know the Lord, and they will wait there. It's like a waiting room. It's a kind of a prison, but it's a waiting room, waiting for the final judgment. Even there, God's presence can be felt for now. And Psalm 119 reminds us of this. This verse, or these verses tell us the same thing as well. That, you know, even if they were to dig into hell, then shall my hand take them. They won't be able to escape God's presence. They won't be able to escape God's wrath, God's judgment. You can't hide from God. Verse 3 carries on. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, going to the top of the mountains, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my side in the bottom of the sea, Thence I will command the serpent, and he shall bite them. As I said already, at the great white throne judgment, death and hell and the sea are all going to give up the dead that is in them. You won't be able to hide from God. There's never going to be a place where you can get away from God. Everyone will have to give an account to God. Notice asterisk, because there is a group of people that will not have to give account at the great white throne judgment. And that's you and I. It's the church those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, because Jesus has already paid for our sin at Calvary. We have a different judgment seat. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. It speaks about it in 2 Corinthians. It's when we are caught up at the time of the rapture, and we will stand before this beamer seat, is the Greek. And it's typically the, the type of... Uh, Occasion you remember, or you, you imagine a kind of a race in the, the Olympics back in the time of the, the Greek Empire, that there had been an awards ceremony for the victors, for those that have won. And that's what it's going to be for us. And we will get to lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. We sing songs based on scripture from Revelation 4 and 5. For believers, that will be our judgment seat. We're not judged according to our works, that's already been done. We'll simply be awarded regarding on how, depending on how we've lived our lives as believers. If we've lived for Jesus, if we've sown to the Spirit, if we've acquired those crowns by serving in ministry, serving him through our lives, resisting temptation and so on. There's five specific crowns that I mentioned. Then we'll be rewarded with those crowns. And you know what those crowns are? The wonderful thing is that we get to lay those crowns at Jesus' feet. You know, we don't go through eternity going, I've got three crowns, and I go, oh, I've got two. It won't be like that. Whatever we get, we get to lay at Jesus' feet. I've, I've said this many times, but imagine turning up. You know, you've been invited to somebody's party or something, and you, you, you know, everyone in the line in front of you going in the door is there, and they've got gifts to give to, to the host. And you're standing there, and you've forgotten a present. That's what it's going to be like. It's going to be a horrible feeling to be there. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 3, it speaks about those... You can talk about the, the, the gold, silver, precious stones, the wood, hay, and the stubble. And it says that those who spend their lives sowing to the flesh, even as believers, when they stand before the throne, they'll be saved, yet so as by fire. That doesn't sound good to me. I'd rather be the gold, silver, and the precious stones, which, yes, have to go through fire to be purified, but then they become something beautiful. What a lovely picture of the sufferings that we go through. Purified, gold, silver, precious stones. All the dross comes to the surface as they're heated up and they become something beautiful. Notice the other thing here as well, speaking about going to Carmel, hiding getting to the top of the mountains, and God says, I will search and take them out thence, and though they be hid from my side in the bottom of the sea, thence I will command the serpent and he shall bite them. Interesting, isn't it? Because... 
always in scripture, references to the serpent seem to have some allusion to Satan. Always go back to the Garden of Eden. That the Lord will allow the devil to attack individuals, to do what he wants with them as they step outside of God's protection, as they step outside of God's plan ordained for their lives. Though they go into captivity, in fact, sorry, let me pause there because that's exactly what Paul says again in Corinthians about an individual in the church at that time who was involved in an immoral relationship. Paul says, hand such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, if you want to play with the world, have at it. And you'll soon find what you've lost. Prodigal son is another great example of that whole idea. Verse 4, And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them. And I will set my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. So again, just this judgment that the Lord is saying is going to be brought upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Lord God of hosts is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt. And all that dwell therein shall mourn, and it shall rise up wholly like a flood, and it shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. So again, that same expression idea, again, the, um, the way that the floodwaters came back over the Egyptians, it's going to be so complete in terms of the northern kingdom. And uh, it is he that buildeth his stories in the heaven and has founded his troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. So there's been an allusion here to the flood as well, the flood of Noah. That the Lord did all this. Just as the Lord destroyed the world at the time of the flood to save just the righteous, the same principle is being applied here. And then God says this, are you not as children, uh, uh, sorry, are you not as children of the Ethiopians unto me? O children of Israel, saith the Lord, haven't I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the, off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. You know, there are some commentators that, that will look at these verses and see, say, look, God is going to get rid of and uh, no plan of future for Israel. But just read the text. It says there, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. It's very clear. God is going to bring judgment on the wicked just as at the time of the flood. But God is always true to his word and his promise and will spare a remnant. There's two groups mentioned here, Benai Israel, sons of Israel effectively, and Benai Kushim. Okay, so Kushim is a term that's translated Ethiopians. They were the descendants of Cush. I just want to quickly read a quote to you. Um, uh, the, their boast and confidence was that they were children of the patriarch to whom God made the promises, children of Abraham. But they were not following the faith, nor doing the deeds of Israel, who was a prince with God, Jacob being a prince with God. Or of Abraham, the father of the faithful. And he said, uh, so, uh, the, the father of the faithful had for Benai Israel, children of Israel, became as Benai Kushim, the children of the Ethiopians, the descendants of Ham. Which give you a very quick lesson here. Uh, you probably remember some of these things, but just very quickly, I'm not going to go through these in details. It will be in the notes if you want to go into it. Noah has three sons. You remember Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from them, the whole of the world is descended. Okay, from Japheth, we have these sons, Gomer, Magog, Kumade, Javan, Jubal, Meshach, and Tyre. And from those are the nations that have uh, populated 
Europe particularly. Um, we'll come back to some of those briefly in a second. But um, again, just for, for the sake of the notes, I'm, these will be in here, but I'm not going to go through it in detail. Uh, and all of the families in Europe, you can trace back to these roots. Interestingly, we see these names like uh, Goma and Magog and so on, because they come up later in, in Ezekiel and elsewhere. Interestingly, um, you'll find that all, all the groups that we know of, we, we can link back to these. Um, but when it comes to, I uh, just mentioned Tarshish there, many think could be um, the British Isles. Uh, it was a source of tin and so on. But Japheth then spreads out from the, the, the area after the flood to inhabit kind of Russia area and Europe, Eastern Europe and, and Western Europe and so on. But then we've got the descendants of Ham. Now you remember there was this incident with Noah and Ham as he goes into the tent and he sees his father naked and so on. And a curse is placed upon this line. Now particularly it's placed upon Canaan. But the whole of this line seems to have this problem. It speaks, the difference here that Amos is speaking about is that Shem, though being blessed, has become as though being cursed. That's the point. If you get nothing else of this, that's the point of this. And you see, again, all of these nations that came from it. Now, ones that are mentioned there are the Cushim, the Philistine, who became the Philistines. Philistines went down to northern Africa or Egypt area. Then they moved to Cyprus, and then they moved across to the mainland, to the land of Canaan, which is obviously where we encounter them in Scripture. And all those groups, uh, descendants of in in Canaan, who Israel deal with as they move into the land, uh, and so on. And of course, they, the, the, the Hamites spread out around the world, including the Chinese who are related to this line as well. And then we've got the, the Shemites, the Semitic group, the Semitic tribes. Interestingly, Persia or Iran are actually descendants of Shem. They're Shemites. Interesting in today's world, we see these conflicts going on. But of course, that line eventually goes down uh, to Abraham all the way down um, through this line. And of course, we're given this in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. But again, the point I'm making here is that as we look at these two groups, the Lord is saying through Amos that the ones who have been blessed, this line that have been blessed, have become like the one that have been cursed. Just one other interesting point. If you go through those lists in Genesis 10, you'll find that there's 70 nations that come from the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Why is that interesting? Well, because in Deuteronomy 32, it says this, verse 8, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance... When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bowels of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. When Israel went down to Egypt, there were 70 who were the children of Jacob. There were 70 of them, and we find that according to that number, God set the number of the nations. Just an interesting tie-up with these things. Back into to Amos' last few verses then. For lo, I will command that I will sift the house of Israel among the nations. Like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. I want to read this to you again um, from the, the Living Bible translation. Uh, it just says, For I have commanded that Israel be sifted by the other nations as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not one true kernel will be lost. And that seems to be the idea here, that God is speaking of judging the nation, they're going to be sifted, but the true kernels, those that hadn't rebelled against God, will be protected. And we know that to be true, that the Lord certainly did this, because 
Many of those who were godly in the northern kingdom went to the south, went to uh, Judah, and then the time of the Babylonian captivity, they were taken safely to Babylon, where they waited for the 70 years, and their descendants then, then came back into the land. Okay, so God always protects and preserves those that are righteous and brings his wrath upon those that are not. Verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. Again, the arrogancy, you see it there. All the sinners of my people. Notice the distinction that God is just. God does never, never judges the righteous with the wicked. But then we have this last few verses. In that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. See, God promising to restore, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Now, you may recognize that quote because it's what we find in Acts 15. We read verse 13 of Acts 15, After they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, and we'll look at the quote in a second again, but the context is that Peter has come back, he's been speaking to the Gentiles, he'd obviously been given this opportunity to go up and speak to Cornelius, and the gospel goes out to the Gentiles from then on. And there was a question, well, is the the gospel allowed to go to Gentiles? And so they have this kind of council meeting that we read about in Acts 15, and they talk about this. And they conclude and say, well, this is exactly what Scripture said would happen. That actually the word, the gospel, has got to go to the Gentiles first. And notice, again, Simeon and Simon Peter declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Well, that's you and I. We're part of that group. And to disagree the words of the prophets as it is written, and here's our quote. From Amos, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doth all these things. You see, God was promising to make the Jews and the Gentiles into one, joining these two groups together, the believing Jews, those that would put their faith and trust in Jesus, and then obviously the Gentiles. And ultimately, eventually, all Israel, we're told, will be saved. The whole nation, eventually, once the Gentiles are gathered in, will come back to the Lord. But notice, the restoration of Israel is after the Gentiles have been brought in. Verse 13. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed. It's speaking of abundance. The, the, The person that's... Uh, plowing shall overtake the reaper, the, the, the treader of grapes, him that so, so again, there's so much abundance, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them, and I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. See, Scripture is so clear in the promises it makes to the descendants of Abraham. Those that are ungodly will be judged, and as they were with Israel, with Judah, 
with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, but the godly God preserved through these things. You know, and really all of this, the story of the nation of Israel is the story of the redemption of man. Called, rebelled, cast out. That speaks of Adam, Eve in the garden. But then redeemed, regathered, given an eternal home. Have you ever seen that? But the story of Israel is just a picture of God's plan of redemption. The way that Israel were called, they rebelled against God, they were cast out of their land, but they will be redeemed, regathered, and given an eternal home. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Amos. Lord, we thank you for the lessons that we've been able to learn, Lord, through his obedience to you. Lord, the way he interceded for his nation was prepared to speak out, regardless of what others thought, because, Lord, he knew that he stood on your word. Oh, Father, we do pray for your people, Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, as your word says we should. Lord, but we do pray for our own nation, for, Lord, we recognize how this nation also has turned away from you and is heading toward judgment. And yes, Lord, you will deliver the righteous before your wrath falls finally on this land. But we pray for, Lord, another revival. We pray for a move and a work of your spirit, that, Lord, a multitude may be brought in. Lord, we pray for people like Amos to speak truth, to the leaders of this nation, that their ears will be open to the truth, that they would hear, they would see, and they would respond. Lord, this famine of hearing the word of the Lord, oh Lord, we pray that some would hear, that some would understand and respond to the truth of your word and the wonder of the gospel. Oh Lord, we just ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.